And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, in Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgil Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Ah, uh, yes, rocking and rolling through the week. It is Tuesday, November 8th, and yes, uh, it's so important for Catholics to go out there and influence the nation, not only through prayers, not only through witness, but actually voting. So... Very, very important day indeed. So get out there and vote. And uh, while you're doing that, you can listen to the podcast because <laughs> we got a great show today. And by the way, if you have to go to vote, definitely go to vote and you can listen to the show on the podcast uh, later on. So you don't have to listen to it live, folks. It's more important for you to, uh, you know, go out there and be a witness for Christ. Uh, what is our show? Well, we're going to ask the ultimate questions here on the show today. For example, this is really the ultimate question of the ultimate question. What is God? What is God? Uh, I think that was a question that Thomas Aquinas himself had pondered his entire lifetime and uh, has unpacked in his theology. But, you know, it's so important to get it right when it comes to God and the nature of God. There are philosophies out there, and some very popular ones by non-Catholics, who have strayed from uh, Aquinas and have uh, come up with other explanations and description of God that ultimately aren't tenable. They can uh, fall apart, and I think it's going to explode in their faces one of these days. So we need to be out there and defend classical theism and be able to articulate it in a, a good and concise way. And that's why I am super fired up to have our guest, Kevin Vost, with us. He's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about his brand-new book. It's put out by Catholic Answers Press called What is God? Answering the World's Most Important Question with Help from Thomas Aquinas. And he, he gets into the issues, folks, and in a very, uh, very readable way, not technical, and yet... Uh, very good, solid way as well. So we're going to be talking to Kevin Vost on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with our Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Courtier's Reply Fallacy. And also we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father is Pope, Pope Celestine I. So, yeah, lots of really cool stuff in store for us today. So I want to begin, as I always do, by welcoming you all to the program. Welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also all of you live streaming folks on social media. Welcome aboard. I also want to welcome all of you listening in the future on podcasts or perhaps even watching on podcasts. Welcome aboard as well. It's great to have you with us. I, I know the podcast peeps are all over the globe. I get emails from all over uh, saying, hey, we listen to a show. We enjoy it. And I appreciate that you're out there listening. And tell your friends, too, by the way. That's a great way to uh, expand the show uh, because we got great information like this with Dr. Vost. Uh, you want to share it with other people so they can in turn help others as well. 
I also want to mention, I mentioned uh, listening on podcast, and that's exactly what you could do. Like I said, I know many of you have to go to mood- meetings, maybe lunch, maybe the baby's crying. You don't want to miss this about God. So you can listen to it as a recording, either on our phone app, Virgin Most Powerful phone app, or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. That is a great place to go. You just click on Hands-On Apologetics or any other great shows, and boom, you got all the shows right there. You can download it. You can listen to it, share it with your friends, do uh, do evangelism, and just share some really great information. All right there, one stop. You know, a click of the button is all it takes. Also, I want to give you the official Dojo mailbox, which is questions at handsonapologetics.com. Again, that's questions at handsonapologetics.com. That goes directly to me, and I do try to answer them, folks, believe it or not. Also, I want to uh, thank you guys for sending in guest suggestions. Uh, the other day, we had a brand-new guest, and uh, a lot of that comes from you. So if you know somebody who's rocking and rolling on social media, doing a great job explaining defending the faith that you think could use a little extra exposure maybe you know have them on the show or her on the show we'd love to have them just uh, send me an email at questions at hands on apologetics.com uh, give me the contact info and also very important give me a link to their stuff so i could check it out myself and uh, if it's dojo quality we'll definitely have them on the show and uh, we've already had several guests suggested um or audience suggested guest, I shouldn't say guest suggested, um, and they're fantastic. In fact, some of them are become have become regulars. So uh, let's okay, let's move to our finding the fallacy segment for today. Today's finding the fallacy is the courtier's reply fallacy. Courtier's reply is a type of informal fallacy. It's coined by the American biologist P. Z. Myers in which a respondent to criticism claims that the critic lacks sufficient knowledge, credentials, or training to pose any sort of criticism whatsoever. So this is a kind of blustering that some people will do. Uh, they will just say that simply you're out of the know. You don't know enough. You're not lettered in this particular area. This is not your expertise. Therefore, they do not need to even entertain any kind of criticism whatsoever. Uh, this does occur quite a bit in apologetics, um, usually with uh, someone who is lettered, right, and um, can kind of flaunt their, uh, uh, what do I want to say, uh, they use their clout, in other words, to kind of dismiss difficult criticisms of their arguments or works. But it's super easy to defeat this. Uh, courtier's reply, if you can get your ob- objection in there, just say, hey, look, if I am so ignorant and, uh, you know, ignorant and uh, uneducated, then whatever criticism I give would be super easy to for you to debunk. So therefore, how would you respond to and then give your criticism or your argument? So that kind of puts the burden on them. Now they have to Vindicate themselves as the experts by handling your objection. Um, so this occurs in many, many different fields. Like I said, I, I have seen it in apologetics, um, usually more in the, the theistic camp. I've seen atheists use that where, uh, 
somebody will pose an objection and they'll dismiss it because the person simply doesn't know enough to even ask a question, you know. Um, outside of that, I don't know, I'm sure it does occur elsewhere as well. So that's our finding of the fallacy for today, the courtier's reply fallacy. All right, so let's meet our early church father for today. For those who are new to the program, as you know, uh, every program that we put on, we learn uh, informal fallacy, and we also, every program, meet an early church father. And so we're going through Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers, just reading a little bit of their biography, and this gives us, uh, I think, much-needed information because in apologetics, you want to use the early church fathers as witnesses of the original faith. That's their value. And you can't do that unless you know who they are, right? Otherwise, they're just the name. And I think a lot of apologists uh, could make much stronger arguments just simply by knowing a little bit of biographical material and learn why they're important. So today's early church father, by the way, is Pope Celestine I. Pope Celestine I is of no small importance for his dealing with the Eastern patriarchs, especially in regards to Nestorius and the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD, except for a fragment of a sermon that appears in the Corpus of Letters, number 10. His letters are his only surviving works. His pontificate is dated from September 422 AD to his death in July 4. 32 AD. So from 422 to 432 AD is his pontificate. Um, so this is a great example. Pope Celestine is actually a bit late. I, I think the red zone for apologetics is uh, probably in the 300s or earlier. So maybe from time of Augustine at the end of the 300s to the Apostolic Age. I think that's like prime real estate for uh, using the witness of the early church fathers. It seems like afterwards uh, they're a little less valuable as witnesses. But Celestine's important here because uh, for Catholic Orthodox discussions, especially in regards to the primacy of the Pope, uh, because they sign on to Orthodox hold to the Council of Ephesus as we do. So this is important. So among the letters, uh, there's one that was written between, you know, within his reign, which is 422, 432. The Corpus of Celestine's letters contain some 27 items, of which 16 are generally regarded as authentic. Probably the most important of them is a letter of Pope Celestine I to his legates to the Council of Ephesus on dated May 8th, 431. It's uh, In Latin, it's known as cum deo nostro. And Celestine writes this. He says, We enjoin upon you the necessary task of guarding the authority of the apostolic see. And if the instructions handed to you have uh, to mention this, uh, if, you have, if you have to present in the assembly, if you're present in the assembly, if it comes to a controversy... Uh, it is not yours to join the fight, but to judge of their opinions. In other words, they're to join what he has handed them, the legates to give. And if there's any difficulties, they're not to the fight, 
they're the judge. That's what the Apple Star C does. Coming up next, Kevin Boats going to talk about what is God. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And we're going to talk about God. What is God? Uh, you know, what is his attributes? How do we know that he has these particular attributes? Uh, these questions are... Uh, uh, are at the forefront in uh, theistic apologetics and even amongst Christians as well. And help us discern that and talk about his brand new book, which is titled, What is God? Is our good friend, Kevin Vost. Uh, Kevin taught at uh, psychology at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee, and the University of Illinois Springfield. He's the author of over a dozen Catholic books, including Three Irish Saints and Catholic Answers Press memorize the reasons. His brand new book from Catholic Answers Press is What is God Answering the World's Most Important Question with help from Thomas Aquinas. And Dr. Vost, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Uh, thanks so much for having me back, Gary. It's always my pleasure. Yes, indeed, my friend. Uh, fantastic book. And uh, uh as it, you know, it's interesting that your background is is more in uh, memorization, right? Uh, if I rem remember correctly. Uh, yes, my, my specialty within psychology uh, was memorization. Uh, I had a broad interest, though, in just cognitive thinking uh, capacities in general, which is one thing that, that really drew me to St. Thomas Aquinas because of the way he actually describes the way we, we think and understand and because he was just so absolutely brilliant himself. Yeah, and it's amazing how much he memorized, too. <laughs> you know, uh, what a mind. And uh, and also your background with Thomas Aquinas as well. Uh, I'm so glad you wrote this book, because I, I think there is a lacuna in Catholic apologetic works, in that we have lots of works about the existence of God, proving the existence of God, but very little about, you know, kind of, pulling out all the attributes that are entailed with that. So you frequently see like atheists who will say, well, Aquinas ends with, and this is what we'll call God, but that doesn't look anything like a God that answers prayers or is all powerful or all knowing. And so your book really fills in. How do we know about these attributes? Yeah, well, I certainly hope it, it does. And if it does, it's of course, thanks to St. Thomas, because I am basically summarizing what he taught and making it in more accessible modern language, hopefully. But but yes, I mean, I, I agree with your point from my own experience of 25 years as an atheist from about my late teens to my early 40s, though I was raised uh, Catholic. And, and when I first read St. Thomas, you know, with my background in psychology, my interest in philosophy, I was you know pretty wild when he talked about human nature and how we think and feel, and the, the role of virtue, what leads to happiness, things like that. Uh, but when I read the first part of his Summa about God, yeah, he, he has those five ways or five proofs, very, very brief, just, just a page or two. But he goes on page after page after page on these attributes, what, what God must really be like, that we can base on our human reason and on what's been revealed to us uh, in Scripture, and really, it's probably Thomas's descriptions of the attributes that dissolved my own atheism that, that answered the arguments 
from from atheists that drew me away from the faith. So it was a real joy for me uh, to write about these since they helped draw me back to the faith. But then hopefully, I mean, it's not just a book to draw atheists, you know, in. Hmm. Hopefully it's the kind of book that, that any of us who, who already believe in God and love him is going to just in, increase our sense of wonder and awe at the, uh, you know, inutterable, you know, power and love and, and being that, that God himself is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's why, uh, well, I don't know, we can't read hearts, but when you have somebody like Richard Dawkins who who comes up with something like that, where he'll focus on only those proofs, of course, he doesn't buy into the proofs. And then he says, even if they did work, that's not the God of Christianity. If he had just turned a page right, <laughs> and read the rest of Aquinas, uh, it would be right there in 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 technicolor right yeah that's right because because i recall reading dawkins book some years ago and in one of his arguments is that the, the god of christianity would have to be just incomprehensibly complex to explain everything that exists and the first attribute that thomas drills deep into is god's utter and total simplicity mm-hmm. showing that god is not complex he is holy he is what he is he is pure act everything all of his attributes are are, are in a sense unified in themselves so, in fact, the complexity that Thomas says, the complexity that exists in the universe and all the things around us, all, all things in their myriad of ways reflect the, the utter being and utter goodness that's there in God all in one, in his utter simplicity from which all of existence flows. So, yeah, I do, I do wish yeah. some of these atheists would have read further and maybe, too, that they would have had a deeper grounding in some of the philosophy Thomas uses based on Aristotle with things like the different kinds of causes, material and formal and efficient and and final and things like that. Because it's really philosophically uh, profound, but but it's, but it's valid. And it's based primarily on just the evidence of our senses, that what the kind of things that are available to every one of us, when we open our eyes, we see that things move and change, for example. We, we see that certain things cause other things. These are Thomas's uh, starting points. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And not only atheists, but even within uh, Christianity, there are some uh, evangelicals like William Lane Craig and others who will deny God's simplicity. And quite frankly, like you said, that's kind of ground zero for Aquinas. Like if you get it wrong on simplicity, everything else gets out of kilter. That That's right. And that's why, in fact, he has... Uh eight specific articles or in the book there are specific sections that show these different ways that say that God is is simple. And I won't go through all of them, but but one is that uh, it's used what they call the negative way in theology. You say in what what imperfect beings, created beings are, how an uncreated, totally perfect being m- must be different in this way. And, and for one, he's saying that God, uh, first way that God is simple is he has no body, he is pure spirit. Because matter is that uh, out of which something is made, form or spirit is that into which something is made. But God is not made out of anything else. He creates all the matter that, that, that any created thing has. So, so God is pure spirit. He shows us that God is pure form and not uh, just matter. He shows us that uh, God's, this is an interesting one, his essence and his nature are the same. It's like saying like, like you and I, Gary, uh, you know, we're human beings, but we're not humanity itself. Yet, you know, because we're in, in, in it, we have matter, we're particular instances of this humanity. But God, Thomas tells us, is his Godhead. His nature 
is his essence. And he goes on through these multiple ways, just showing, just to begin with, how in this sense, God is simple, and partly because he says God is like pure act. He is all that he is, all the time. There's no potential. He doesn't change. He's just the absolute perfection, absolute uh, act at all times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, it's yeah. If I remember correctly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when Thomas Aquinas raises the question of whether God has a body, I, I think that's one of the few times in the Summa where he actually insults the objector. <laughs> I, I, like he comments that that's a really dumb <laughs> position to have. But uh, yeah, simplicity uh, is so important because not only, I mean. It's not only the foundation for all the other attributes that you can kind of pull out of the simplicity, but it's also important for it's like dialogue with Muslims, right? Because they'll deny that Christians believe that God is totally one. And like, we don't even believe God has metaphysical parts. I mean, he's totally simple. But if you get that wrong, then in a way you kind of have to concede the point to Islam that, yeah, we, we do believe there are parts in God. Yeah, a very valid point. And what you're talking about, too, yeah, there was a, a theologian named David of Dinant, D-I-N-A-N-T, who lived before Thomas, who who somehow he equated a God with prime matter or primary matter. But Thomas says that's absurd because they couldn't be more different. Primary matter is, is potentially anything. It's like pure potential. You put form in matter, it can become anything. Whereas God is the, in a sense, the exact opposite. He's pure form. He's pure actuality. So Thomas said it's absurd to equate these two because they're so exactly opposite. But but yes, when we do go through something like God's simplicity, which Thomas talks about in great detail, it does set the stage. And then it shows how all these other attributes that we'll talk about, his perfection, his goodness, his immutability or, un, or unchangeableness, his infinity, his total immensity, his uh, omnipotence, his eternity, you know, and so on. These are all, they're all intermeshed in God in a way that they're all one, his intellect and his will. But but yes, I should say too, with saying that God has no body, you know, he, he's, he's talking about, you know, God from eternity. But Thomas is not discounting the fact that God chose to take on a body when he entered time uh, through through Jesus Christ. But, but God fundamentally, as he exists in eternity, yeah, is pure spirit. And he also... And characteristic of Thomas, he will also then buttress this with, with particular quotations from Scripture. I don't remember exactly where this one was now, maybe from John. We're saying, you know, God, God is spirit or God is a spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he talks about, well, he, Thomas really kind of starts the whole thing by giving us 10 basic points about the nature of sacred science or theology. And he talks a lot about the, the different levels of meaning in Scripture and the fact that Scripture often uses metaphor. You know, so when it says, you know, God has shown strength with his arm, it doesn't mean he has these gigantic arms. You know, it's showing that he has he has uh, power. So Thomas is very careful when we go through Scripture to look at the particular sense that, that's made there. Because some people say, well, we're made in the image and likeness of God, and we have bodies. So, so God must have body. And Thomas says, no, we're made in his image and likeness, and that he gave us dominion over things on the earth as he has dominion over uh, all of the universe. So we're made in his image and likeness in terms of having intellect and will. We can know the true and, and do the good. But those are immaterial, spiritual uh, characteristics of human beings. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, it's <laughs> there's so much to cover. That, that's the beautiful thing about this area of uh, philosophy and theology is uh, it's so inter- interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, uh, 
so that's one. Uh, also, Aquinas ties this in the scripture as well. It's not purely just philosophical speculation. It, he anchors it with authorities. It's most definitely scripture. Um, so the other attributes kind of naturally flow from God's simplicity, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're all uh, interconnected. Thomas says God is one. In, in some sense, there are different ways of us uh, looking at God, like the fact that God is. Um, well, I, I should probably say, you know, some of these arguments, too, are what pulled me back into the church. Uh, like, for example, one uh, argument of, the, of the atheists that I remember reading as a teen it said the the idea of God is self-contradictory. Now, how can God be all-powerful and all-knowing? Because if he knows what he's going to do tomorrow, then he doesn't have the power to do something different. So I'm thinking, oh, that's a good one. And I, you know, I wasn't catechized to know how to respond to that, or I tell people, or if I was, I was, I wasn't paying attention that day, you know. Yeah, right. But then I read Thomas, and I realized as I was going through this book too. Almost all the, the popular atheistic arguments, they're treating God as if he were just some grander version of a human being, yep. not, not realizing that the way he transcends us. And I really saw an amazing answer to this when I read Thomas, when he's talking about God's eternity and, and about the nature of God's uh, power. Yeah. Well, you know what? We'll hit pause right there. I hear the music coming up. Yeah. We're chatting with Kevin Bose about his brand new book, What is God? Put out by Catholic Answers Press. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We are chatting with Kevin Vost, the author of a brand new book. It's titled, What is God? Answering the World's Most Important Question with help uh, from St. Thomas Aquinas. And, uh, oh, you know, I am so glad you broached that topic right before the, the, the last break, Kevin, because I think that's pivotal. I think the reason why not only atheists, but a lot of people really uh, fall into error when it comes to thinking about God is they just picture God as like a superhuman, you know, they, they try to imagine God. And like Aquinas says, you know, our imagination is tied to our senses. So you're trying to take something material, composite, finite, and try to blow it up to God size. And nothing but error is going to come from that, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like that idea that, that it would be self-contradictory, you know, to be all-powerful, all-knowing, like how's God going to do something different tomorrow if he already knows what he's going to do? But it's assuming like, you know, God like us, he gets up out of bed in the morning and says, what am I going to do today? <laughs> but, but no, Thomas explains, you know, God lives uh, in eternity. He, we, have, we live in you know, one minute at a time, temporal, everything's successive, but for God, it's a simultaneous whole. His existence. So there's no yesterday, today, and tomorrow for God. It is all uh, eternally present to Him. And then Thomas gives a nice little analogy. I really, this really struck me when I first read this one. He's saying, like, imagine that you're walking on a hilly road to some little uh, village. You know, you may not see that village until you get to the last hill, or you don't know for sure who came before you, who's coming after you. He said, but from a person in a from a perspective high in the sky, they see it all at once. And he said, this is the way that God sees. It everything. He sees it simultaneously. He's not limited to the time, uh, in, in time to the way that, that you and I are. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So it's, we, and that's a temptation for us to try to take God and simplify him. So it's easy for us to imagine that if I were God, this is how I would act. 
And of course, you run into all these weird logical problems that that supposed logical problems. But God, uh, God is pure act in eternity, so there's no succession of time. So, like you said, when God knows, when God knows, He knows in a way very different than how we know, right? Because it's yeah. not we know through uh, you know analysis and picking up on particular things, where God as Aquinas says, actually knows because he knows himself. Very different. That, that, that's right. And, and everything there is to know existed first within God because he everything flows from him. So there's, yeah. there's no surprises for God. It, it all emanates from him. Like every goodness that exists, exists in a unified way uh, in God. So it's all there. And I will say too, Gary, another one, uh, that some of the atheists will, will, will talk about, I know the objectivist philosophers would say, you know, existence exists, meaning the material universe out there. Open your eyes, there it is. They say that's your starting point. You don't have to ask where that came from. That That's where we start. It doesn't make sense to say, you know, what caused that. That That's the, the ground to begin with. And there, I first read Thomas's third argument on contingent versus necessary being, and he says, you know, think of it yourself, you know, who, who among us gave ourselves our own existence? You know, of course, none of us did. You know, we got that in a sense from mom and dad, but then mom and dad got that from, from someone beyond them. And in a sense, every material thing in the universe, what has the power to create itself, to give itself being? You know, we, we know nothing does. And if everything is contingent, it may or may not exist at any particular point in time. Thomas says there could have been a point in time in the past when nothing existed. And if nothing existed and everything was contingent, there could be nothing at all because nothing can make itself exist out of nothing. So he says there must be some necessary being that must exist and that must be the font of all things that do exist. And he said, and this is God, that's one aspect of God is the necessary being. And then I was really wowed by the way, you know, Thomas lays all this out. And then, you know, then he kind of points out, or actually it's at the start of this question here. He, here he cites the Bible, and when Moses asks God, you know, when he's talking to him in the bush, you know, basically, what's your name? Who should I say sent me? And God says, basically, you know, I am, you know, say, he who is, I am, who am, say, he who is sent me. So Thomas says, God is telling us right there in that statement, even in two words as simple as I am, he's saying God is being itself. He's the font of everything that exists. His nature also, Thomas gives a nod to St. Augustine back to the eternal aspect. God tells him, I am, and because God doesn't have I was and I will be. There's also that eternity expressed there. So when we look at even as little as, you know, a, a word or two in Scripture, we can see these deep philosophical profundities revealed to, the, to us. Even in the Old Testament, well, this is the God of Christianity. Well, then Thomas reminds us that after God tells Moses, you know, I, I am, he says, I'm also, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we go to John, I believe, 858, and Jesus Christ tells us, before Abraham was, I am. You know, yeah. so, so all this beautiful philosophy and reason and theology and revelation just mesh in the most, you know, amazing and beautiful way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I, I, that's uh, one of the things I love about the Summa is because, you know, Aquinas always, even in the Summa Contra Gentiles as well, uh, that he's always he's always connecting it with Scripture. So it isn't just purely an intellectual uh, exercise. There's also, you know, you have faith as well as reason that go together. 
uh, yeah, really good stuff. So, so for the objectivists, you know, A equals A, existence exists. Are they really just, are, maybe they're just describing God. They don't know it. They just think A is some material thing. Yeah, no, I like, I really like that insight, Gary, because uh, yes, I mean, existence exists. Well, Thomas tells us that God basically is existence, yeah. the, fount, the font of, of all existence, and his essence and existence are one. That he is and what he is are one, unique among all creatures. So in a sense, that's, that's true. God is the existence that exists. And all of us who are, we could say, like existence with a small e, we exist because of the love and generosity and goodness of that existence with a capital E, who is God. So, yeah, I think I, I, I like that insight. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, hey, score one for me. I actually I came up with a good idea. Uh, so, uh, so God's knowing is so different from us. It's introspective. It, God knows all things because He knows Himself, and He knows. And like you said, He's the the font of everything that is. So, of course, He knows everything. So that has important implications, like God's omnipresence, right? Because uh, God is present where He operates. And yeah, exactly. So, so you know, Thomas tells us many ways that God is is present everywhere. You know, one is by His essence, presence, and power. Uh, God is everywhere in in His by His essence because the fact that we exist is we're participating in His existence. So the, the very fact of what we are uh, is because of God, because of God sustained created us or sustains us in our existence. Uh, he's everywhere by His presence in that everything is present to Him. His knowledge. Uh, comes this is everything everything we do even what we think though he gives us the freedom to think what we want to think mm-hmm. and he's there by his power because everything is is a subject to god's power he has total dominion uh over reality which he created you know out of nothing and then thomas is too god's also there in some other special ways uh god can be within us you know through his grace mm-hmm. when we you know receive his graces at, at uh baptism god god is lives in us in a special way in our souls and there's special ways that we have uh, union with God, uh, ultimately, hopefully, in heaven. And, of course, we know God is also present in a very special sacramental way uh, in the Eucharist, as Thomas explains, not here in this first part of the Summa, but later on when he talks about Christ and, and the sacraments. Yeah, yeah, very good. So uh, so God's knowing, and, and again, you know, the thing is, once you start looking at one attribute, you start going to all the other attributes, but um, one criticism of uh, Aquinas is that, uh, well, actually, it's more of Aristotle, that God seems to be frozen in time. So it doesn't seem to have volition, you know, or a will like we would expect, you know, like we do, where we could change our minds or, you know, we could direct our wills in different ways. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know if we'll have enough time, you know, for in this segment, we'll pick it up on the next how does God, how does God will? How does he act? Yeah, if we're going to pick it up, I'll be, I'll be pondering. Oh, yeah, we got, we got like two minutes if you want oh, to start. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, sure. Well, one thing, you know, Thomas notes that like in God, his intellect and his will, all these things are kind of separate and that's, they're one in God. Remember, he's, he's simple. So, so Thomas says that God wills only one thing necessarily, and that is goodness, because he, he is, he is good. He was good to himself and to all all things that he chooses to bring into existence. But he said, yeah, I mean, God God has a, a total wealth. He set up the universe according to his own plan, his own uh, divine providence. Again, God's will, I mean, he's not acting like yesterday and today, tomorrow, like you and I. 
this is all all present at once. It's all act there. But it is you know the most powerful, the freest of all wills. And then to us as creatures, as human beings, and also as angels, he's given this special uh, gift that we do have the free will uh, of our own to control our, our own acts within our limited sphere of power, though, though God's is ultimate and reaches to all things. And maybe we could talk about it after the break, too. Thomas does talk about the different ways we can look at God's will, like what he wills antecedently versus what he wills consequently after we choose to operate in certain ways with our own wills. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah. Those are very important distinctions as well. Yeah, I, I think part of the misconception is we think of free will being free if we only have a choice. You know, uh, so y- you are uh, you're free if you're you can not do something just as you can do something. So if a, if God is pure goodness and He can only act good, then He doesn't really have a free will. But you you pointed to that that that's kind of a misconception of freedom, you know, because freedom's uh, well. I'll let you explain. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's it's you know absolutely no limitation in in, in God because because will too will uh, operates on the basis of love. It's what draws us to uh, to the good, and there's no evil in God. And he's he's drawn to no evil. Evil is only a privation of the good that, that, that should be there for some reason is, is missing. So there would be nothing that would draw God a, away from goodness because goodness is, is by its definition uh, the source of the will. Love draws us towards what is good. God himself is, is total goodness. And then he's sharing that goodness with everything within creation. So in this way, I mean, there's only very few ways Thomas talks about actual limitations in God. Maybe we can talk about one of those uh, when we come back. But, but for all things that are possible and for everything that we can do, God can do a whole lot more. Absolutely. We're chatting with Dr. Kevin Bost, talking about his brand new book, What is God? Answering the World's Most Important Question with Thomas Aquinas. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Kevin Vos, the author of a brand new book, What is God? Answering the World's Most Important Question with the help of Thomas Aquinas. It's available through Catholic Answers Press at Catholic, uh, was it shop.catholic.com? And uh, Kevin, uh, yeah, let me see if I could tee this up for you. Because this was a huge insight when I was reading Aquinas. Often atheists will say, well, how can God be, you know, you have an immutable God who only has like one will, act of will, how can he answer prayers? That Doesn't that imply that, uh, you know, God's will changes? Yeah, and, and this gets into some inter- interesting, and you know, philosophically, theologically complex material. Also, when we, it kind of ties into the, the ideas of predestination and, and free will. Mm-hmm. So in terms of God's providence, the overall plan for the universe and the actions that we take. He he knows all this in advance. He knows what we're going to do because he's in the eternal now. But he gives us our own powers of, of causation to choose whether we're going to act according to his will or or not. Sometimes I might say as an analogy, like let's say, you know, you you have a spouse or a, or a friend you know very, very well, and you, you know some they're going to encounter some situation, and you see how they react, and you say, I knew you're going to do that. 
you know, because you, you know them so well, you can pretty well predict what they're going to do, but you didn't cause them. They still have their own, their own free will. Uh, so God does that in the most perfect way. You know, in a sense, he, he knows what we're going to do uh, in time, but we still have the capacity uh, to do that. We still have that, that freedom to operate in terms of secondary causation. And in terms of prayer, even, Thomas addresses this in a few places in the Summa, too, saying, like, you know, why, why should we pray to the saints? Well, like, well, doesn't God already know what we, what we want? Well, yes, he does, you know. Yeah. Uh, and are we going to change God's mind? Well, technically, no. But, but Thomas says, but God has preordained, according to his divine providence, that we will help each other, that we will help each other attain heaven. So part of his divine plan is that we, we will reach out to the people who embrace God's love, who, who uh, gather around his throne in heaven, offering the incense of their prayers to him. And Thomas points out those saints in heaven, they're not praying for themselves because they've already arrived. They're already in heaven. Their prayers are for us. So it's, again, a part of God's grand uh, plan of providence includes things like us reaching out to him in prayer and sometimes also reaching out to others for intercessory prayer. Yeah. Yeah, and and is it possible for God to make conditions, for example, to say if uh, so-and-so uh, does X, like prays for X, then something would necessarily follow as opposed to whether they don't? I, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I say and in that case, yeah, I think so as part of God's plan. It may be that, that uh, certain actions are going to take place at, at certain times, uh, as we're inspired by his will according to the divine plan, but it still right. wouldn't necessitate that we do that particular thing. We still have the choice right. whether to co cooperate with God, to cooperate with his plan, to cooperate with his graces or, or not. So he's still giving us a, a genuine freedom, even though even even though, you know, even the will itself that we have, the fact that we have free will comes courtesy of God as a gift of God. But it's real and he allows us uh, to use it even if we would sadly choose to act against him. Because this is said, you know, in God's antecedent will, as he sets up his, you know, his plan for the universe, his will is that all, that all of us would join him in heaven. But he knows to, to give us our natures in his image and likeness as beings with free will, that it's possible that some of us will choose to uh, reject him. So he, so, but he even, but he only allows these evils so that even a greater good can come from it, so that people can freely and willingly choose to cooperate with him. Uh, the way that other creatures like animals, you know, they don't have that free will like we do, so they can never attain the, the kind of depth of union with him that we can if we, uh, if we exercise that free will properly and accordingly, according to his grace. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, so last question, um, when God loves, does he love like we love? Well, does God love like we love? Well, yeah. I say in, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, uh, no, <laughs> yeah. because in some ways, the, the, the fact that God loves uh, is why things exist. The very fact that there is a universe, that, that we are here, is an outpouring of God's love. He doesn't owe us anything. God is totally self-sufficient. He's simple. He doesn't like, I'm not going to be happy unless I make these crazy humans, you know. He didn't have to do that. It, it, it was gratuitous. It was a gift. Uh so, so God Himself, you know, is, is completely happy. I'm sorry. What was the original phrasing of the question? I've... Yeah, I was just uh, whether God loves like we love. Oh, like we. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so our love, you know, we we love people and beings and, and God, hopefully, you know, that exist. But our love does not actually cause things to exist, which God's actually God actually does. 
Uh, but in a sense, like us too, uh, God, God does have, in a sense, we could say hierarchy in his love. He loves the higher things more than the lesser things. Like he gives human beings and angels, he gives them special uh, rewards that are not given to inanimate objects. So there is kind of a hierarchy of being that reflects his degree of love. And one thing I really love in the writings of Thomas, and again, he's borrowing from scripture and church fathers too, is that, you know, Thomas says that we're all going to achieve beatitude in heaven, total bliss by seeing God in his essence. But he said there, but, but some of us will actually achieve a higher beatitude than others. So it's like, well, who has the greatest bliss in heaven? Is it the smartest people like, you know, the great philosophers or Thomas Aquinas himself, because they can understand things so deeply, or we're going to see God in his essence. Is it those who have the most powerful glorified eyes? And Thomas says, no, because we're not even going to see him through glorified eyes. It's through a special gift of God, God's illumination. But he said, well, who's going to determine, determine who gets the greatest gift of illumination to draw most closely to God? And Thomas says, it's those who love God the most, who embrace his gift of love the most while here on earth. So we could have the simplest person among us. If they deeply and deeply love God uh, on earth, their bliss is going to be in the extreme in heaven, though all of us are going to have the highest degree of bliss that we're capable of when we arrive in heaven. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, I, that was mind-blowing for me, too, when I first encountered that with Aquinas. It makes so much sense. And, you know, there there's kind of, you know, in popular um thought it's like oh everybody goes to heaven everybody will be happy everyone's equal god loves everyone equally you know and there is a, a truth to that in that if god didn't love you you wouldn't exist right mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh but that doesn't mean that like uh god doesn't love some people more because uh like you said you know some are closer to him some imbibe his love even more and of course the blessed virgin mary you know, who's, uh, you know, the crown, there has to be a kind of hierarchy of of love in heaven as well. So, oh, yeah. oh yes, absolutely. I think it's so beautiful, too, that when Thomas lays this out, he also talks about like different crowns or, or, or aureolas, these special gifts given to certain classes, like the church teaches the great doctors, the martyrs, the virgins, or special recognition in heaven. But the thing to keep in mind is in heaven, we're there, we're all the great communion of saints. There's no envy in heaven. So if you say, hey, that person in some way has a has a higher honor than me, you're not going to say, you're not going to begrudge them. <laughs> right. You're going to say, praise be to God. <laughs> My brother or sister uh, in Christ is enjoying this, but boy, I'm enjoying all I'm able to enjoy. You know, thanks yeah. be to God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's not like a, it's not this enforced egalitarianism in heaven. There's going to be distinctions and it's going to be glorious. Uh, when you're writing the book, was there anything that you learned, uh, you know, putting it together, something you discovered that you didn't originally uh, notice before? Yeah, well, I, I kind of say when I went through this material, because I thought about doing it for, for years, and it's really, it's just the first 26 questions, 156 art seven articles of the Summa, just, you know, one by one, boom by boom. But I said before, when I read this, I realized I had kind of three stages of wonder. My first was, I wonder what Thomas is talking about, you know, when he's dealing with some some difficult things like different kinds of actual versus potential infinities and all this, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, but the second stage is I starts to make sense or I'm reading other commentaries. It's clicking. And I'm like, I wonder how he could possibly have done this. <laughs> Put all this together, quoted so many church fathers, in, in, you know, hundreds of years before we had computers or the Internet and all that. But then the third and final stage, I says, wonder with a capital W. Wonder and awe about the God he he wrote about himself. So I think that was my greatest experience with going 
through this writing of Thomas to see just how beautifully it meshes together and how wondrous God is. So at the very end, I put 133 God is statements that I pulled from all of Thomas's article. Uh, and my motivation for that was that St. Rose of Lima, it was said, had a confessor make for her a list of God's perfections, I think 150 actually, which said that then became a form of meditative prayer for her. So I think too, just the more we know about God, the more we're going to be in wonder and awe, and the more we're going to love him for what he gives to us so freely. Yeah, amen. And, and you know, Thomas is someone that, that should be studied and pondered but you're absolutely right. There has to be, it has to sink into your soul. He's also somebody that should be read prayerfully. And, you know, the insights he has could be very fruitful meditation as well. And uh, so that's awesome. I mean, what a great feature to have in your book. So, Kevin, where can people go to get uh, What is God? Well, this is published by Catholic Answers. So if you go to the Catholic.com's website and shop there, that would be the the first stop. I'm sure it's also going to be at uh, various internet sellers. And maybe if you have a local Catholic bookstore, they might have it or be able to get it. Awesome. Awesome. So are you working on anything right now? Yes. Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, there, there, There's a, bu a book coming out next month from Sophia called You Are That Temple about uh, health and holiness. Well, and then after that, there'll be a book for uh, our Sunday visitor on uh, scrupulosity. Wow. Boy, you've been busy, my friend. <laughs> it's been a busy year. One book after another. Yikes. Uh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So, uh, yeah, so this is, I like I said, I think Todd at uh, Catholic Answers is a genius because I, mm. I think this is a perfect book. And there's there's just nothing out there to really pull out and focus on God's attributes kind of like this. And it's a great introduction for somebody who doesn't know Thomas. Would you agree? I would, just to get a sense of the, the majesty of his writing and, and his profound, yeah. profound mastery of Scripture. And I will say, too, at some points, if something was kind of sketchy in the Summa itself and I wanted to dig deeper, Thomas wrote beautiful biblical commentaries. So sometimes I would go there, his commentary on Job or the Gospel of John, and say, ah, he's addressed this topic even more richly there. So, so Thomas is just a, an incredible spiritual master of philosophy, of the Church Fathers, and first and foremost of, of the Scriptures themselves. Yeah, and he died young too, didn't he? About about forty nine. We think he died before the age of fifty. So it's just it boggles the mind what he did. I know. Yeah, it would take at least that long just to just to get a you know, grasp of all this information, let alone synthesize it and write it. Yeah, amazing, amazing gift for the church. And and as you are, my friend, uh, Doctor Kevin Vos, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Gary. My pleasure. Thanks for all the work you do. All right. Well, uh, yeah, folks, pick up the book, What is God? It's available through Catholic Answers. Just go to shop.catholic.com. Pick up a copy because uh, this is material that you need to know, and especially if you want to get get your feet wet with Aquinas. All right. Well, I hear the music. The hour is gone, but never fear. The dynamic duo of Terry and Jesse will soon be here with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. This thing with Paul Hands on a Bye-bye.